brother. Um, well, good morning, Redeemer Fellowship. Um, before we get into uh, the scripture this morning, uh, I was just praying for you guys, and I just wanted to pass along just a very simple message to you. Um, thank you for allowing me to be one of your pastors. I, I could not be more grateful to be able to be a shepherd of such a wonderful church. It is a privilege. This is not a have-to for me, and I can speak for your other three pastors as well. This is a get-to. We get the privilege of being able to tell people about Jesus, and not just tell people, but to be able to tell a precious people such as yourself. And I just absolutely love you guys from the bottom of my heart. I, I've been brought to tears weekly uh, about how much um, you guys just mean to, to us, to, to our team, to me personally. So thank you for having me as one of your pastors. I'm honored to be here, and I'm honored to open up God's Word with you today. So with that, if you would take uh, your Bibles, if you have one, and please open up to Acts chapter 19. It's also going to be projected up behind us. And we have Bibles in the seat pockets if you would like to use those. So um, one of the beautiful things about teaching through books of the Bible rather than teaching topical sermons week in and week out is that we are forced to look at each and every passage, not just the ones that are easy to preach and not just our theological hobby horses. Uh, I love preaching about mission. I love preaching about God's heart for messy people and reaching down just the messiest of the messiest and preaching about how we don't worship a stained glass Jesus. And I could preach about those topics every single week and never get tired of them. But that's what I mean by hobby horse. It's easy for a pastor to fall in love with a topic that's really dear to their heart and then preach predominantly, if you're preaching topical messages, messages that fit into that paradigm because they come very simply. But a beautiful thing happens when you preach through books of the Bible. You learn new things. That's a good thing, right? And you develop areas of your theology that take a little bit more work. And as a result, you develop new and deeper passions. And you begin to see a brilliant luminescence of Jesus in a new and exciting light as you delve into some of the more obscure passages. And this morning's passage that we're looking at, I'm just going to ask for grace ahead of time because this is considered by most commentators to be one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament. Um, there's some unusual tensions that are taking place in these verses, and commentators were pretty much just split down the middle on how to handle those tensions. So that didn't really help. So the way that I'm going to present it is to present the tensions, the different views, and why they would be held to, and hopefully build a case for why we believe the Bible is pointing to the evidence we see it pointing to. So I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory before we get into our text. The general gist of our passage, as we look at Acts 19, we're going to cover verses 1 through 20, but the general gist of the first seven verses that set the table for this passage is Paul showing up in Ephesus, and he finds this group of people that Luke refers to as disciples. So Paul asks a question that he asks nowhere else in Scripture, asking them if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed, to which they answer, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. 
So Paul asks another question that he asks absolutely nowhere in Scripture, asking them, well then, what were you baptized into? And they give an answer that's also found nowhere else in Scripture, saying, well, we've received only the baptism of John when we believed, at which point Paul lays hands on them and baptizes them in the name of Jesus, and they all begin speaking in tongues and prophesying, and they become the core group of the Ephesian church plant, and then end up having a party where they gather up all of their witchcraft books and trinkets and have a giant bonfire, and then have um, some false prophets get beaten up by a demon-possessed man. So what could possibly be tough to understand about that passage? Right? I was studying ahead the last couple of weeks, like, oh boy, I'm eventually going to have to get to this one. So um, it's going to be as much of an adventure for me as it is for you. One of the things that helps it be a little bit easier to understand and know the difference in how to interpret passages like this is knowing the difference between descriptive versus prescriptive language in the Bible. Let me say that again. Descriptive versus prescriptive language in the Bible. And it's often where people get themselves into trouble trying to interpret difficult passages like this, particularly narrative passages. So prescriptive means that the passage is actually prescribing something for Christians to do. And a passage is prescriptive. It's commanded of all Christians everywhere. So the information that's written about in the passage is actually there because we're supposed to do what the passage commands or do as the people in the passage are doing. And then there's descriptive. Descriptive means that the passage is a description of something that did historically actually happen, but it's not written as a commandment for all Christians. But since all scripture is inspired by God and profitable, it will undoubtedly have a principle that we would be able to apply to our lives. But it's not as simple as saying, these people in this passage did this thing, so now you go and do likewise. And the Bible is full of things that are descriptive and not just prescriptive. And we all read the Bible like that, but I'm going to make a case for you that for some reason we choose to get goofy when we get to passages like this, even though we all instinctively know that there is a difference between descriptive and prescriptive language. For example, if you were reading through the book of Judges, and let's say you got to Judges 15 where it describes Samson killing a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, I don't think any of you if you came upon the remains of a dead donkey on the side of the road, would be like, now I got to go rustle me up a thousand Philistines to go and kill with this jawbone, right? That, that wouldn't even cross your mind. You would just be like, oh, there's a dead donkey. You might even make an association and say, there was one of those in the Bible. But you wouldn't say, this is prescriptive, that since Samson killed Philistines with a dead donkey, now therefore I must kill Philistines with a dead donkey. And it's a silly analogy, but that's the point. We read things as descriptive all the time. Now, is there a principle in that passage that you would be able to gain? Absolutely. And if I was preaching on Judges 15, I would share that principle with you, but without even knowing the terms descriptive versus prescriptive, the point 
of what I just shared is to show you that you already do that and know that when you're reading your Bibles and you already know that just because something is a description of a historical event, it doesn't necessarily mean it is a prescription of the way that things are supposed to be. And the danger or confusion comes when we try to take descriptive events and turn them into commandments that are prescriptive for the entire church and treat them like they should be normative to all Christians' experience everywhere and for all time. And I know that because of poor hermeneutics, some have had really bad, negative experiences surrounding the term the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we're going to be covering in this passage, or you've had negative experiences when it comes to the speaking in tongues like it's going to talk about in this passage. And depending on where you've come from, you might either be coming and saying, oh, now I have a heightened curiosity about these things, or you might be wishing that we didn't go over them at all. But this is Scripture, and it is next in our study in Acts, so we're going to cover it. We're just going to ask for the Spirit's help to cover it in humility and precision and grace. So let me do that. God, I pray that this passage would be conveyed with accuracy, with precision. Lord, that you would help me to have humility in sharing different views where good and godly Christians often disagree. And Lord, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, that I would not get in the way of your Spirit's work. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's going on in the passage? Let's look at verses 1-7. through It says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So, Paul leaves Corinth, where he was at at the end of chapter 18, and he arrives in Ephesus here in chapter 19. And this ends up being one of the key cities to the New Testament church. Paul spends more time in Ephesus than he spends at any of the churches that he planted. He spent two and a half years in Ephesus. The next closest was Corinth, where it's believed that he spent about 18 months. And after that, you're talking only about six months or less at most of the churches that he planted. So two and a half years of Paul's time was spent in planting the church of Ephesus. Timothy later pastors the church of Ephesus, as did the apostle John before he was exiled to the island of Patmos, spent a period of time being a pastor at the church of Ephesus. John's direct disciple, a man named Polycarp, a man after the apostles died, Um, A guy that John led to the Lord ends up taking over as pastor of the church of Ephesus. They end up getting one of the most theologically rich books in the entire Bible written to their church. They're visited again by Paul 
after he leaves here. We're going to get to Acts 20 in a couple of weeks. And we see that he again goes and meets with the people in Ephesus. And then Jesus himself writes them a letter in the book of Revelation. So this place was kind of a big deal. And it says that at the end of verse 1, that as they show up, they found some disciples there, which is curious language because there's some pretty big pieces that are missing from their theology of what we would normally consider a disciple. But Luke still uses that term, and he seems to be using it pretty positively in this passage. And then Paul asks them a very curious question in verse Two, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And that's not a question that he asks to any other group of disciples anywhere in the Bible. So there's not a comparative passage to be able to look at and hold this one up against. And their answer is even more curious. No, we didn't even hear that there was a Holy Spirit. So these disciples probably didn't have very much of a Jewish background because through, even though Jewish people didn't have the well-developed theology of the Holy Spirit that Christians would have post-Pentecost, they were certainly aware of his existence. They had a word for him in Hebrew, Ruach HaKodesh. Anybody want to say that? It's a lot of fun. Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, really the, the holy breath of God. You see it in places like Genesis chapter 1 where it talks about how God's Ruach hovered over the surfaces of the deep. You see it in Psalm 51 when after David is repenting of his sin with Bathsheba, he says, Lord, take not your Ruach HaKodesh from me. And they didn't appear to be very Trinitarian in nature, seeing as how they didn't even know about the third person of the Trinity. Yet Luke still calls them disciples. And friends, even commentators were mixed up on that one. The best analogy that I could come up with to try to explain the use of calling these people disciples lacking this Trinitarian theology was from a professor of mine when I was in Bible school. I worked for a Mormon company when I was going to Moody out in Chicago, and I had been witnessing to my coworkers for about a year, and I had been witnessing to this one girl in particular who seemed pretty receptive to the scriptures, trying to show her that Jesus was indeed the Messiah and that he was God, very God. And she got to the place where she agreed that the scriptures taught that Jesus was God, that he was indeed co-equal with the Father, and that's huge for a Mormon to be able to get to that place. But then she said, I'll accept that, but I refuse to see the Holy Spirit as God or to see God as a triune being. I was really confused about this because in evangelicalism, we talk a lot about accepting Jesus, right? And it seemed like she was accepting Jesus or she did accept a biblical view of Jesus. So I asked this professor of mine, what do I make of this? She's willing to accept Jesus as the scriptures say that he is, but denies the Trinity. So he asked me this really great question. This man was so full of wisdom, and I praise God for him. He said, Eric, did you understand the Trinity when you got saved? To which I said, no, I, I don't know that I can fully understand it now. That's, that's a pretty tough 
concept to wrap your mind around. But then he asked an even more poignant question. He said, but did you ever deny the Trinity? And when you were presented with the Trinity and the truths of the triune God, did you accept the triune God by faith? To which I answered, yes. So he told me, Eric, there's a big difference between not understanding the fullness of who God is and revealed in the triune person of the Godhead and denying the fullness of who God is. It can be the difference between saving faith and not saving faith. So it would seem by the answer given that these 12 men were not opposed to the teaching of the person of the Holy Spirit. They were just ignorant of the teaching of the person of the Holy Spirit, which is why Luke uses the term disciple. And then Paul asks another curious question in verse 3. Well, then what were you baptized into? And Paul explains that John's baptism was just a baptism of anticipation for the coming of the Messiah. But the Messiah has come. And in his name, we're baptized now, meaning that we're no longer baptized in repentance for anticipation for anything. We're now baptized as a memorial or a testimony that we've already been forgiven and made new in Christ. Being baptized in anticipation now after the coming of Jesus would be like rewrapping your Christmas presents after you open them on Christmas morning, right? You already know what's in the box, so you're not going to be shocked if you just rewrap it and and reopen it again. There's no more anticipation. The anticipation has been revealed in the person of Jesus. So in verse 5, after he asks them if they're interested in that, they're like, oh yeah, give me some of that. And they're really interested. And that's when things really start to get pretty squirrely. Paul baptizes them and it says that the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and he comes upon them in this demonstrative way like he did at Pentecost and like he did in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans, and they begin speaking in tongues. And friends, this is where the whole descriptive versus prescriptive thing really starts to come into play. Were these folks being baptized in the Spirit in some way that goes beyond our initial baptism. Is speaking in tongues supposed to happen? Is it supposed to be normative? Is speaking in tongues the true mark that we've received the Spirit's baptism? Does this gift come through the laying on of hands like it did in this passage or like you see in many charismatic churches or like you see if you watch like TBN or Christian television program? Or was this moment descriptive of a unique moment in time rather than being prescriptive of what the life of all Christians was supposed to look like? And why does Paul ask them what they were baptized into after he asks them about the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be baptized by or baptized into the Holy Spirit? And that's a big question. And I'm going to give you the four predominant views. I have a slide back here for any of you note takers. Um, I'll post them online if I remember, but I'm going on vacation right after this service, so not likely. Um, so there's the view that when somebody puts their faith in Jesus, that they are baptized into the Holy Spirit 
immediately upon conversion. And I'm going to come back to that one in a moment, but um, I was trying to think of an analogy to explain this, and, and I would say that this is the Stevie Wonder theology. Here I am, baby, signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours, right? That's what that belief holds to, that, that when the Holy Ghost, when we believe in Jesus, the Holy Ghost comes upon us, we're signed by his name, we're sealed, we're delivered, I'm yours. Didn't know that was a Christian song, but now you do. So... Then there's the old school Pentecostal view. This is the second one. That there's this second experience of grace known as the baptism of the Spirit and that it's evidenced by the gift of speaking in tongues. Then if you do not have the gift of tongues, you have not been baptized in the Spirit and therefore you are not saved. There's a newer or more moderate Pentecostal view, and this is held by most assemblies of God churches that would say that the baptism of the Spirit is something that happens after salvation. So they would say that you can be saved without it, but that you are not living the complete Christian life until you've received it. A Pentecostal friend of mine explained it like this. He said, well, it's sort of like you're a glass of chocolate milk with the Hershey syrup at the bottom of the glass. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the spoon and it stirs it all up and it takes that white milk and it takes that chocolate and it turns it into something wonderful. And I'm like, oh, that's cute, but way to not even use the Bible whatsoever and to explain your predominant theology with a glass of chocolate milk. And it's usually people that hold to this, it's marked by some sort of religious experience, and they would usually say that that religious experience is then followed by the speaking in tongues. And then there's this newer, more hybrid view. I've got to admit, I, I find it pretty attractive. Um, theologians like Wayne Grudem, John Piper have been playing with this view, or the baptism of the Spirit is used sort of interchangeably with the term filling of the Spirit, and it's not viewed as a second act of grace, and it's not viewed as some one-time act. It's viewed as something that happens potentially multiple times over the life of a believer to empower them and fill them and prepare them for special works that God would be calling them to. So I know that in today's ecumenical culture, where everybody is right and everyone gets a trophy for just participating, that it seems arrogant to be able to say that one view is right and other views are wrong. But I'm just going to be blunt. I see some of the above views as dangerous. And I want to be clear where I'm coming from theologically. I'm not a cessationist, meaning I don't believe that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit ceased in the first century church. I believe that all of the gifts of the Spirit are still in operation today in the church. They might not be normative. It might not always look like it looks in the book of Acts. Some of them I've never experienced in my life, but I do believe that God is bigger than the sum total of my experiences. But as a guy who believes that there's still an operation today. I still see some of these views as dangerous, and I believe it should be hit on. And when I say dangerous, I don't mean that we should hold <clears throat> people that hold to a different view as our enemies, or that we should break fellowship 
over it, aside from some examples in rare cases that I'm going to hit on in a couple of moments, but I do see it as something that's potentially dangerous because it causes genuine confusion and often produces other negative fruit. I can remember back when I first got saved, all I wanted was more of Jesus and more of his spirit working in my life. Any of the kids that grew up in my youth ministry will remember every single message I said this, that Jesus Christ cannot be your something. If he's your anything, he has to be your everything. Get that. Jesus Christ cannot be your something. If he's your anything, he has to be your everything. And that's the way that I went all in on Jesus. Uh, I tried to pursue him with the same vigor that I pursued my sin prior to coming to Christ. And believe me, I pursued my sin passionately. So I started to pursue him passionately. So as I first get saved, I start running with this very Pentecostal crowd. And I remember them telling me that I would never live out my true potential until I was baptized in the Spirit with the evidence being speaking in tongues. And I can remember going to a lot of Sunday evening services where I would go up to many different altar calls and the preacher would would tell people come forward if you want to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit or if you want to receive the gift of tongues and I would go forward for all of these things because I genuinely thought I was missing out on something and it all came to a head one night when I was in this dude's apartment and he kept on smacking me in the forehead with his palm and commanding Satan to release my tongue and he told me Just turn off your brain, man, and just start making sounds. I'm going to tell you this. If anybody ever tells you to just turn off your brain, you're probably in a cult. So uh, that should have been my first clue that I should have gotten the heck out of that place. But just turn off my brain, start making sounds. So he's sitting there just, mm, 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 biffing me in the forehead. And it's funny because for, you know, a group of people that talk so much about healing, he was probably the cause of my migraines. And... uh, (laughs) So I just start making some weird sounds just to get this guy the heck away from me and to leave me alone. And he's sitting there biffing me, and I'm like, ah, blah, 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 blah. And he reminded me, if you've ever seen the movie Hook, where Robin Williams realizes that he's the pan, and the kids are like, you're doing it, Peter, you're doing it, you're doing it, you know, as I'm making these sounds, he's like, whack, whack, you're doing it, Eric, you're doing it, the devil's not holding your tongue anymore, and I can laugh about it now, but I felt really weird, and I felt really uncomfortable, and it also made me feel really inadequate, like I was less spiritual, and I didn't or couldn't love Jesus as much as they did. And that's the last thing that a young man who's trying to go all in for Jesus needs to have somebody put on their shoulders. And looking back on it, the reason that I felt inadequate is because I was being called to hold something higher than I held Christ. I had been devoting my life to reading the scriptures and growing in Jesus. And my nose was in my Bible nonstop. And and all I wanted to do was take this new relationship with Jesus and just go all in and make 
this relationship with my new Savior, my all in all, but they were taking an experience and holding it higher than Jesus himself. And any time we take an experience and hold it higher than Christ, it's not going to feel right. It shouldn't feel right. Jesus loves you too much to allow that to feel right. Look, I'm all for experience. As a matter of fact, I think that in conservative evangelical circles, we're not experiential enough, and we don't talk about experience of the Holy Spirit nearly enough. I'm all for experience, but our calling is to worship the unchangeable Jesus, not to worship experiences that change as often as our emotions do. I'm going to put it to you simply. Worship Jesus, and you will often come away with a beautiful experience. Worship experience, and you'll often come away missing Jesus. So I had a chance to lead chapel services over at this Pentecostal school, and I got to see firsthand how confusing this was for teens. If you want to destroy a child's confidence in Christ, make a big deal out of some kids having a religious experience and then tell them that they don't measure up unless they have the same religious experience. You're either going to end up destroying that child's confidence in Christ or you're going to make that child just fake it so they don't feel ostracized, leaving them with a phony faith that has no real substance to it that will fall apart someday and paving the way for them to live their life for Jesus to impress others and living a life for the approval of man. And if there's anybody here who's ever lived your life for the approval of man and has tried the hard work of slowly repenting of that and learning to live for the approval of one, you know how hard that is to change later on in life. We don't need to be reinforcing that to our young people at young ages. So What it did was create this culture where if they were able to have this demonstrative experience, then it completely made up for the fact that they weren't growing in holiness or growing in their understanding of God's word. I remember even having a kid tell me that if I show up and I do all the right rituals, then my parents leave me alone about what I do on the weekends. And, and the most dangerous things about these beliefs is that it creates these categories of haves and have-nots. And as you look at this passage, the main focus is not experience. The main focus is getting Jesus correct and then removing the things from our life that prevent us from seeing Jesus as infinitely beautiful as he is. And, and though I've used some strong language here, I see the view of needing some secondary experience of grace is dangerous. I want to be clear that I'm not trying to beat up on my charismatic friends. I'm just trying to teach the passage in front of me. And I don't think that it's something that we should be dividing over, except for in extreme cases. Though I'm presenting the traditional Reformed view, I should point out that there are some really solid Christians who really love Jesus, who, thinks, who do see things differently. And the only time that I think 
that it should be something where you divide over is when people come at you with the whole, you're not saved unless you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues nonsense. And the reason that I would say that that's worth dividing over is because at that point, it's not that we're just not seeing things the same anymore, that we're seeing things a little bit differently, or that we're worshiping a little bit differently. At that point, they're messing with the gospel, and that's not okay. And the gospel is too precious to allow people to mess around with it. Or if they're pushing it to the point where they're making it look like there's two different classes of Christians, the haves and the have-nots, that's also a problem, because guess what? At the cross, it is the great leveler, and there is no room for a caste system at the foot of the cross. How many of you are grateful for the fact that there's no caste system at the foot of the cross? So anytime somebody comes to you with, you are not really saved unless, and the next word of their mouth is anything but Jesus, just tell them they're a heretic and walk away from that conversation. But like I said, most people who disagree on this one are not in those extreme camps. And we have to be able to have room to love people that see things differently so long as they are not teaching the gospel in a heretical way. There has to be room to see things differently, even pretty big things like this and still love each other. Uh, a quick story before I, I, I'm going to probably wrap up this passage in about five minutes, but just how stuff like this can sinfully divide over issues like this. It ended up happening between me and my best friend. When I first got saved, there was a buddy of mine who was, we, we were friends out in the world together. We used to get in a lot of trouble together. We both got saved around the same time. And he was of a very Pentecostal background. I was a Zionist dispensationalist Baptist. And if you don't know what that means, then good for you. Uh, <laughs> but we were leading this Bible study together for young adults. And this thing was blowing up. I mean, it, this, it's where I met my wife. It, it was, there was just so many young adults coming out to this study and getting saved. And it got to the point where we were fighting over this issue so much that we wouldn't even talk to each other any longer. And we just completely disbanded the study derailed a beautiful work of God where people from many different denominations were coming together around the person of Jesus because we lacked the maturity to be able to see our differences through a mature set of lenses. And friends, I've got to tell you, I was the one that was in sin in that. My theological snobbery led me to a place where I held my methodology higher than I valued the unity in the spirit and seeing people come to know him. And let me point out to you guys that the Reformed Church, we need to learn from our charismatic brothers. We should be teaching more about the filling of the Holy Spirit. We should be teaching more about having an experiential faith. How many of you read through the Psalms? Anybody? How many times in the Psalms do you read things like, Shout for joy! Clap your hands, all your peoples. Fall to the ground. Weep. You hear all of these great demonstrative terms in worship. Yet they're often lacking 
when the people of God come together. I do often see those things when I go with one of my Pentecostal friends, but then I end up sitting next to the crazy tambourine lady and it distracts me. But, um, sometimes I feel like Reformed churches worship what we call the Reformed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And the Spirit is the forgotten person of the Godhead. And listen, if the Holy Spirit is present, we should be having experiential times of worship. So let me quickly share with you um, some reasons why we hold to no second baptism or no need for a second work of grace. The first biblical evidence, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where he's talking to the Corinthian church, and he says, by one spirit, we have all been baptized. He uses that Greek term, alos, there, which is all-encompassing. So he's not saying some of you still need to receive this, some of you haven't. He's using this past tense, you have all been baptized. The, another one would be Ephesians 4, verses 5 and 6, where it says, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So I say to people that tell you that you have to be, you're baptized into Christ, and then you're baptized in the Spirit, and then you have to get baptized. I'm like, man, that sounds like one Lord, one faith, three baptisms. To me, um, the fact that why would we want to emulate the Corinthian church? The Corinthian church was a hot mess. Another one is we're not commanded anywhere in Scripture to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit subsequent to our salvation. And the last is that some passages clearly just say not all speak in tongues. So what's the point of what was being done here? John's baptism was for repentance. But repentance in and of itself is not enough. Look, Christianity is not just about feeling sorry for the things that you've done in the past. And it's not just about choosing to be good now and not duplicate the things that you did in the past in the future. It's about the fact that when you've put your faith in Jesus, that when Jesus died for your sin, your sin died with him. And when Jesus rose from the grave victorious, you rose in him victorious, new, a new creation in Christ. The Holy Spirit empowers us not only to be sorry for the wrongs that we've committed, but to have power to live out the Christian life and then to be continually transformed into his likeness. But then as usual, when there's a genuine work of the Spirit going on, Satan tries one of two tactics, or in this case, both. He either tries to attack it, or he tries to counterfeit it. Look at verse 8. He says, and then they enter into the synagogue. They're reasoning for three months. They're teaching. Skip down to verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. That's pretty cool. But then somebody sees it and says, let's counterfeit this. And some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Realize that this wasn't Jesus who they had a relationship with. This was Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. Paul I recognize, but who are you? <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, and the man, 
in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, and they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. And also many of those who became believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all and counted the value of them. And it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So Satan sees a work of the Spirit. He tries to attack it. He tries to counterfeit it. And that's still what happens today. When you see a work of the Spirit, there's always close behind something that's going to counterfeit it and try to attack it in order to try to cast into doubt the validity of it. And those who are walking in the Spirit continued to walk in the Spirit. That's how our passage ends. So you want to know how to continually walk in the Spirit? Continually turn from the things that kept you from Him and put those things to death so that you can continue to walk in the Spirit. That's the point of them throwing all of these magic books into the fire. It's... Not that they wanted to just have this book-burning party. This passage has really been abused over the years. This was just a demonstrative way for them to show we don't want to return to the lifestyle that we used to live. We don't want to return to death anymore. We've tasted the good things of the age to come. We've experienced Jesus. How could we possibly ever go back anymore? And we we want to not only not go back, I want to pluck out my eye to show that I don't want to return. If my hand's going to cause me to stumble, I'm going to cut it off to make sure that I don't return to that because that's how serious this is. This is life or death. It's fascinating that this passage begins and ends, it bookends with repentance and repentance. And I'm not telling you to go and have a book burning, but has the filling of the Spirit compelled you to desire to destroy those things that pull you away from Jesus the way that it did the Ephesians. So as we look at some application to close the book and a couple of questions, this passage should be a flashing beacon of the necessity of the filling of the Spirit to live out the Christian life. You need the Spirit to live out the Christian life. We can't do this just by our own power or morality. And the filling should lead to passion. You can't have a spirit-led, passionless Christianity. Uh, those, those, that's an oxymoron. Spirit-led doesn't lead to passionless. And passion should lead us to repentance. Hear that. Passion should lead us to repentance. Love should be the thing that guides our repentance. Not guilt. Not shame. You can always tell the difference between repentance that comes from Going that comes from passion because one is going to make you grow closer to Jesus because you realize how infinitely sweet he is. And when you're in the sweetness of his presence, you're like, ah, I want more of this. I want to be more like you. And this is why Paul at the end of his life could still say, oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Or he could say things like, I am the chief most of all sinners. Not because he was the chief most of all sinners, but the more and the closer he got to 
to the person of Jesus, the more it exposed how much he wanted to be like Jesus and how much in his life still had to be nailed to that cross to become like Jesus. You can't guilt somebody into repentance. And I just want to make sure that you get this. Guilt-based repentance pushes people further away. You want a perfect visual picture, two people diving, Peter and Adam. The repentant one goes diving in the water when he sees his Savior and couldn't make a swim to Jesus fast enough. The one who was just feeling guilt goes diving in the bushes and couldn't hide from the Lord fast enough. Another direct application from the passage is worship that's focused on Jesus will always put Jesus on display. Worship that focuses on experience and as an experience itself as the goal is going to put flesh on display. And we've seen plenty of seeking experience of ex for experience sake. But the long road, hard road to holiness is exactly that. It's sometimes a long, hard road. But friends, it's worth it. But if it's just an experience, then what you get is minute right, Jesus. It's instant, but it ain't lasting. Holy Spirit-filled worship will encourage people to continue to press on towards Jesus. God, thank you so much for pushing us. Lord, that even when we would run the other way, that your Holy Spirit beckons us. Lord, that even when we would eat from the troughs of pigs, that you remind us that the slaves in our Father's house eat better than this. Lord, I thank you for the unrelenting love of your Holy Spirit. Draw us near, and Lord, may our worship be filled with genuine passion that generates from a thankful heart. In Jesus' name, amen.